So uh, many of you uh, may have seen the film Jerry Maguire. It's uh, Tom Cruise is in it. Old film, and um, he's an agent for a sports team for sportsmen. And he leaves his company. He's only got one client left, one person who'll go with him, one customer. His entire livelihood depends on keeping this one person, who's a black football player called Rod. And Rod rings him up. So this, this whatever we think about it, this thing that drives, that inspires, that motivates, that corrupts, it's money. According to many people, it's what uh, makes the world go round. And yet... We don't really talk about money in church, do we? It's a bit of a taboo subject. You know, we talk about uh, life and death. We talk about relationships. We talk about spiritual things. We talk about sex. We talk about family. But money, mm, that's a different matter. That's my own business, isn't it? Which is weird because a lot of our lives are spent earning it, spending it, and actually worrying about it as well. It's a big topic in our lives. So given that it's such a big subject in our lives, why wouldn't the Bible have a lot to say about money? Why wouldn't it? Well, unsurprisingly, it does. The Bible actually has loads to say about money. Apparently, I haven't counted them, but there's something like 2,000 verses in the Bible all about money. And Jesus talked about money more than almost any other topic. He talked more about money than he talked about health, more about money than he talked about relationships, more about money than he talked about love or forgiveness. Isn't that interesting? There's only one topic that Jesus talked about more than money, which was the kingdom of heaven. That's the only topic that Jesus talked more about than money. And uh, many of Jesus' parables, 11 parables, relate directly to money. Whether it's finding money, a man goes out and finds treasure in a field. A man goes out and finds a, a pearl of great price. Or squandering it, a son goes to his father and says, give me half my money, I want to go and do my own thing. And he goes and wastes it. Or uh, using it wisely, the parable of the ten talents or ten miners. Or whether it's the, the, the shrewd steward or the rich fool. Many of Jesus' parables relate back to money. A lot of Jesus' teaching... A lot, of it, a lot of the historic incidents that occurred with Jesus are about money. So Jesus suddenly stops and says, did you see that woman in the temple who put in the widow who put in two coins into the collection? She put more in than anybody else. Or he goes along and he finds a man, a tax collector in a tree, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus ends up saying, Lord, I'll give half of my wealth. I'm going to give back to the poor. Or some folks come to Jesus and say, say Jesus, here's a coin, a piece of money. Who, who does it belong to, Caesar or God's? All these incidents occur about money. And actually a lot of Jesus' teaching as well, irrespective of the incidents, was about money. Jesus said, be careful, be careful where you store your treasure. Store it on earth where rust and moth will destroy it and thieves will break in and steal. Or store it in heaven where rust and moth will not destroy and thieves will not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Not you shall not, or you should not, or don't try and do this, but you cannot serve both God and money. This is up there. It's, 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 it's face on. And not even counting all the texts across Old Testament and New that talk about giving money to the poor. How we treat the poor is one of the top two or three themes across the entire Bible over the New Testaments. But not even counting any of that. Not even counting. Just discounting that, the Bible has loads to say about money. And so we might think, isn't this 
a bit excessive, you know, there's all this stuff about money keeps coming at us, isn't a bit over the top? Because after all, isn't money really just a tool? Is it just a tool, something we can use? Well, it is a tool, but we are shaped by our tools. Or as someone once said, we shape our tools, but thereafter, our tools shape us. Think about it. Think about the car, the invention of the car. We invented the car, but how much of our lives have been transformed by the car? Or television. We invented TV. TV has created all kinds of new lifestyles, all kinds of desires, good and bad. Or the internet. Perhaps the biggest example. We invent a tool, but then the tool shapes us. We shape the tool, but then the tool shapes us. So, so it is with money. Yes, it's just a tool. It's just a tool, but we are shaped by our tools. Money, I would say, is an index to a person's character. How we deal with money actually says an awful lot about who we are and how we are. And it says a lot to God about who we are and how we are. So, just before we do talk about money, (laughs) why don't we talk about money in church more? Why don't we talk more about money and giving and what we should give? Well, I guess, just to deal with them, there's a few reasons. Um, We don't want to upset people. We don't like to upset people, humanly. As leaders, we don't like to upset people. So if anybody's upset today, please come and see me. I hope not. Uh, We don't want to appear hypocritical. It's difficult to talk about things, isn't it, when someone could say, well, what about you, Chris? You've got money. You have a job. What about you? And that's a fair comment as well. That's a fair comment. And, well, it's just a bit awkward, isn't it? Just a bit awkward, isn't it, talking about money? So let's talk about spiritual things because they're nicer to talk about. But uh, we are embodied beings. We are on this earth and we have to do stuff with our physical bodies and with stuff. And so it's important that we talk about stuff. If we are serious about Christian living, then we should deal, we must deal with the awkward stuff as well. So let's talk about money. And in fact, we are talking about money. If you're in a small group, a house group, which I hope you are, we've been talking about the widow's mite, about Zacchaeus. Jonathan talked about um, the big parable of the bigger barns two weeks ago. And today also, we'll try and bring that together and talk about this topic. So first of all, just to say, just to clear this, the Bible is not against money. It's not against money or against financial prudence. And there are many cases in the Bible of people with money, and they were doing good things. So there are women in Luke chapter 8 who pay for Jesus out of their own resources. They had the means to do that. And Jesus Jesus accepts that. Or uh, Lydia in Philippi, who's a businesswoman who deals in cloth, she comes in the Philippians, letter to the Philippians and in Acts. She's a businesswoman, and she invites Paul to begin a church in her house because she has a big house because she's wealthy. Or if you look in the Old Testament at Abraham, arguably and possibly the most wealthy man in the then known world. He had huge possessions. So the Bible isn't against just money, having money. It's our attitude. It's what we do with it. A life focused on chasing security a life focused on generating income, a life focused on continually protecting ourselves with more and more layers, which eventually becomes a life of anxiety, that's not the life that God wants us to lead. That's a far cry from John 10.10, where Jesus says, I have come that they might have life, and life in all its fullness. 
or as the street Bible says, which I like, I've come that they might have life, extreme life. That's what God wants for us, extreme life, life in all its fullness. Not a life of worrying, not a life of anxiety, not a life of chasing after one security after another. So money is a tool. Yeah, it is a tool. But we are shaped by our tools. Let's read. I'm going to read the parable of, uh, of the rich fool. Sorry, the, of the rich young ruler. And um, it's interesting, not least because this is the only recorded person in the Gospels who turns down a direct request to follow Jesus. The only known person in the Gospels who turns down a request when Jesus says, follow me, he says, no, I don't, I'd rather do something else. Let's read it. So a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? But Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Let's just pray as we get into this then. (coughs) Heavenly Father, this word says that you looked at this man, you looked at him face on. And so as we come to you today, Lord, we invite you to look at us face on, Lord, and to reveal in us, Lord, the truth about our lives, about our possessions, Father, what's good and what's not good, what you like and what you don't like. Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Amen. So let's just run through the story again, this account, Luke 18. So this rich young ruler, who probably has inherited wealth, uh, comes to Jesus and asks an important question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And um, he's given a a response from Jesus who summarizes the last five commandments. The first five commandments deal with our attitude to God. The last five deal with our attitude to each other. And, and the world. And Jesus summarizes those. Honor your father and mother. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Interestingly, he doesn't go to the last commandment yet, which is do not covet. But this chap says, oh, well, yeah, that's fine. I'm, I, yeah, I've kind of done all that. I I'm, I'm, think I'm doing okay, actually. But I want to do something else. What else can I do? Show me something else. I want to I be closer to God. I want to be sure about this. But Jesus sees what's going on. 
and says, because this chapman is a bit like us sometimes, isn't it? We come and we say, what, what's the next book I can read? What's the next spiritual discipline I can adopt? What's the next act I can do? What's the next act of commitment I can do? What's the next prayer that someone will pray with me? Which is all good, all good. But sometimes we don't want to talk about other, the things that Jesus wants to talk about. So Jesus says to this fellow, all that stuff is fine. Let's talk about the thing you don't want to talk about. Let's talk about the one thing you don't want to talk about. So Jesus' invitation then, who says, give it all away, is followed by a kind of, you what? And the disciples say, well, who then can be saved? (laughs) This is impossible, isn't it? But let's for a moment just think, what stands between you and God? What stands between you and God? Because that's the thing that Jesus wants to talk about. It might be several different things. It might be money in some of our cases. The command to give it all away is not a universal command. It's not given to everybody. It was given to this man because he needed to hear that. And it shattered his lack of understanding of the Tenth Commandment. Do not covet. Don't go after things just for the sake of it. Coveting is so easy, isn't it? We just fall into it. We um, suddenly, we can, so we can afford it, so we want the next biggest house or this year's car or the next model of iPhone or whatever it is, because we can. And we do it a little bit, little by little. Uh, I think sometimes if... um, we could have seen ourselves 20 years ago, perhaps, and seen, you know, we would possibly be surprised at how much wealth we do have. It's something that occurs by degrees. Jesus is not saying to this young man, he's not saying to us, you need to be poor, and he's not seeking to find fault. Jesus isn't seeking to find fault, but he is saying, he is saying, I want to invite you into a trusting relationship with me at the centre, not your possessions, not your pensions, not your insurance policies. I want to invite you into a trusting relationship with me at the centre. Surrender your whole self to God, he says, especially those things which you keep away from God, especially those things that you might rely on more than God in the end. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. What we do with wealth, and wealth could mean money, power, talent, influence, shows where our heart really is. Our rich young ruler becomes speechless at this. Jesus says, this fellow says, well, I've I've done all those commandments. I've honoured my father and mother and I've never committed adultery. I've never stolen and never murdered anybody. What else? What else is there? And Jesus says, well, you have to give everything away because that's standing in between you and God right now. And this fellow can't do it. But he doesn't walk away immediately. We know that because the next verse In the next verse, Jesus says, Jesus looked at him, sorry, the verse says, Jesus looked at him, looked into his face and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then this um, slightly bizarre analogy or joke of camels and needles. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there was a, a story going around churches a few years ago, probably 10 years ago, I don't know, um, where people thought that the, the eye of the needle was a gate in the wall of Jerusalem. There was the main gate, and when the main gate was closed in the evening at sundown, the only way in was through the eye of the needle, which was a very narrow gate 
so that marauders couldn't go in en masse. And the idea was that even the camel, you had to unload the camel to, get, to push the camel through. And it was a brilliant sermon illustration because it was like, we all have to unload our belongings before we can approach God. Unfortunately, it wasn't true. And modern scholarship has pretty much blown that out of the water. There was no gate called the eye of a needle. So Jesus is simply comparing the largest animal known in Palestine, camel, with probably the smallest practical aperture, the eye of a needle. This is how hard it is, he's saying. If we get this wrong, this is how hard it is. So, the disciples say, well, who then can be saved? This is impossible. But Jesus says, no, it isn't. Jesus replies that God's will will prevail. It's about our attitudes to money. And it's about our attitude to generosity more than how much money we have. And we'll dig into that. So what does this story, what could it mean for us? Uh, What could it mean for us today, living in Cheshire in 2017? Well, you know, sometimes the Bible is hard, and it does have hard words, and sometimes it's tough. And these words are tough words, aren't they? They're tough words from Jesus, uh, if we look at them face on. And um, it's like the writer to the Hebrews says, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God cuts through whatever we think we knew, whatever smugness we thought we had, whatever holiness we thought we had. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And then he goes on, it penetrates to dividing joint and marrow. Ouch, that sounds painful. The word of God penetrates to dividing joint and marrow, soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And this is the word of God, the two-edged sword, I think, right here, cutting in to, to, what, to our lives. Uh, I think it's, it's interesting that the word of God is described by the writer to the Hebrews and elsewhere as a two-edged sword. The first edge of the blade of the word of God rends the veil on Jesus, and we see God as he really is, suddenly, which can be scary and can be wonderful as well. And then the second edge of the sword, following quickly, rends the veil on our, on our own hearts, and we see our own hearts as they really are. The word of God really is a two-edged sword. And here it is, the word of God cutting and dividing and revealing our attitudes. Now, some of us here are in different situations, aren't we? Some of us, including me, are very middle class. We've got enough to live on and more, some more. Maybe in some cases a lot more, maybe a little more. Other people here are not in that situation and maybe struggling with money, maybe struggling to make ends meet wherever you are. But I think it's true, isn't it, that we all need a healthy attitude to money, however much or however little we have. We all want the right attitude to that. Um, And a few people, you may have met some, I've met one or two, feel called to live by faith alone, which I think is is an incredible calling, a high calling, a unique calling. Some people, very few people I know, have said, as Christians, we won't worry about money at all. Somebody else will see to our needs. We won't worry about pensions, about mortgages. We won't even worry about who's going to pay me next month. That's a specific calling, which has to be done uh, with the wisdom of other Christians, very much so. But for the rest of us who don't feel called to that, for the rest of us, being prudent, looking after our affairs, isn't wrong. It's not wrong to try and think, well, I, I want to pay this mortgage off, this reasonable mortgage, and, and I will have to have some kind of pension plan. That's prudence, and there are 
um, parables and stories that Jesus tells about being prudent. Um, the wise steward, for example. Great good is done with money as well. So a lot of people here, maybe all of us, give to causes. Uh, and, and great good is done. You know, charities like Tear Fund, Christian Aid, huge amounts of good, masses of good across the world. Whenever there's disasters, whenever there are people in earthquakes and floods, as we've seen just in the last few months, massive good can be good done. And that couldn't be done unless we earned money and had it to give away, right? So money isn't bad, money isn't wrong. It's our attitudes we need to just look at and think about. Being prudent is good. Um, but we have to be careful, don't we? Because being prudent can very easily slip into the bigger barn idea. So two weeks ago, we heard about the, the farmer who um, had so much crops, so much harvest, that he couldn't squeeze it all to his, into his barn. So he said, what shall I do? I know. I'll rip down my barn. I'll build, build an even bigger barn and put all my stuff in there and more stuff. And then when that gets full, I know what I'll do. I'll rip that down and build an even bigger barn. And God says, well, tonight you're going to die anyway. So what? And so we, can, we too can slip into, can't we? Uh, what about yet another kind of policy to protect me from something that's even less likely to happen? Or, you know, what about even another pension that I have in case the other three don't... And, and, and we all have to make that decision, don't we? Uh, we have to be wise about that. Because to some extent, this is prudent. Then to some extent, it becomes bigger barns. Or, you know, we can now have an even bigger house. Because, just because we can, you know. Uh, we can now have uh, this year's model of car and change it every year, every two years, just because we can. Or... We can have the iPhone 10, 11, 12 as they come out. Just be, these are, can be examples of bigger barns. These can be examples of bigger barns. And it's hard to determine, but we need the wisdom to do that. There is a creeping tendency, particularly in our affluent Western society, and all of us are rich compared to most of the world, all of us, there is a creeping tendency in our affluent Western society to look after ourselves more and more simply because we can. And we don't notice it because we creep into it more and more. And God wants to loosen our grip on these things because in the end they make us anxious. If we keep chasing after the next protection, the next policy, the, uh, yet another pension plan, these things eventually cause us anxiety. And God says, I want to be at the centre of your life, and I want to be the one that you put your hope in and your trust in, really, not just on a Sunday morning. So, there has to be a line in the sand somewhere, doesn't there, which we each draw. How much am I going to have? How much am I give, going to give away? But where is that line? And how do we know when we get to it? I'm reminded of Wesley, Charles Wesley, I think it was. He had a, a great line in the sand. But as a young man, he was earning a certain amount of money and he worked out what he needed to live on, and he said, anything I ever get more than this, I will give away, which is incredible. That's incredible. wish I could do that. Anything I get more than this, I'll give away. How much should I give or keep, and how will I know when I get to the line? Well, let's talk about tithing for a minute. A tithing is uh, a Christian discipline from the Old Testament. Uh, it means giving 10% of, of what we earn, giving 10% of what we have. And uh, I uh, didn't tithe as a young man, Alison has always tithed since I knew her, which, because it's, once you, the sooner you start, the easier it is to do some of these things. I didn't, or, or I got around it with some clever thinking. 
<laughs> right, it's not, well, it was never quite there, but uh, I, I, as a young man, late 20s or early 30s, I went to Spring Harvest, where it constantly seems to rain in Skegness, and I was wondering what to do on an afternoon. went to this talk about tithing by this chap from the Rock Ferry, a minister, and uh, he, he talked about tithing and how convinced he was that this is something for us to start with, something for Christians should start with, and he used this passage from Malachi 3, which is reasonably well-known, but I'll read it out. And this is what the Lord says. And the Lord says to his people, Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not room enough to store it. Give the Lord your first fruits, not what's left over, but your first fruits, this passage says, and see if you are not blessed. Uh, said to be the only place in Scripture where God says, test me, you test me, you test me in this. Give the Lord your first fruits and see. It's a promise of abundance, an invitation to test with promises of blessing, which may not be financial, may not be financial, but God says, I will bless you so much, you won't have room to store this. You won't have capacity in your life to store the blessings that I will rain upon you. And it's a challenge and a promise. And this fellow was so certain about this. You know, he put uh, on a flip chart, he put his name up there and his address and his phone number, and he said, look, you tithe, you tithe, and in two years, if you feel that God hasn't blessed you abundantly, come and see me and I'll pay you back. So I thought today, perhaps I should do that. I could put Jonathan's name and address <laughs> on a suit and his phone number. But it, it, it was a challenge made from faith. And it challenged me, challenged me as a young man. I thought, wow, you know, I'll do it because of this man's faith. And I, and, and I did tithe from then on. And I do feel that God has blessed me abundantly. Maybe not financially, but has blessed me abundantly. So that's just uh, tithing. I want to talk a little bit, make this more and more specific to us uh, here at Lynn. So, this is about generosity. It's not about rules. It's about having a generous heart. God doesn't want us to obey rules because rules are there. He wants to change your heart to become like his heart. That's what he wants to do so that we give, because we're just grateful for what God has given us. That's the reason, not because it happens to say something or other in the verse, because God has done so much for us. But there are still questions, even with tithing, aren't there? Yeah, Because the Bible doesn't just talk about tithes, it talks about tithes, which is like the 10%, and then offerings, free will offerings, which are given spontaneously just because God moves your heart on a certain day and says, look, Aren't I generous to you? Why don't you be generous to this person, to that charity, to this cause, to this appeal? Offerings, tithes and offerings. That's according to your faith and your discernment. Most of these things are. Do we tithe before tax or after? Difficult question. That is according to your faith. If you tithe after tax, so the taxman takes his whatever, and then you tithe 10% according to your faith, you do that. But if you can tithe before tax... Before, from your gross, you have the faith to do that, then you do that. Tithe according to your faith. 
Does the money, where does the money go? Does it go to the local church? Let's talk a little bit more about the local church and where money goes. So this is the, the key slide, which I thought, should I put this in or not? And I will say, uh, and I'm never going to say this again in a sermon, I don't think. Never said it before, right? That if you're a visitor here today, uh, feel free for the next three or four minutes to do Facebook, check email, tune out, do what you want. Of course, if you are a visitor now, you're like this, aren't you? What's he say? <laughs> but we do need to sometimes talk specifically about what goes on here. So just for a couple of minutes, let's talk about here. So, yeah, how much and how we give is a question of your conscience and your prayer at the end of the day. There are examples of tithing, but it's still down to your prayer, your conscience, and what you can do. But should we give it to the local church? That's according to your conscience as well. That's according to your conscience. Many of you give to other causes. But the local church still has to function. The local church has to function or lots of things won't happen. Lots of things won't happen. And also we see uh, in Acts, actually Acts 2 particularly, the local church was the focus for giving. People gave to the church and then the church determined how do we give this to that community to that appeal over there, to this need over here. The church determined that. So actually the church was the focus. If we want to be scriptural, giving was to the local church. Uh, right now, this church is headed to, for a, a bottom-of-line uh, statement where we'll, we will be £10,000 under budget at the end of this year. It's, it's been a creeping situation since the beginning of the year, and we are under budget. So basically, expenditure exceeds income. And that's likely to be by about 10K. We are looking at expenditure to see what we can do. But like any other organization in the world, if that continues, difficult decisions have to be made. Difficult decisions have to be taken about what we can do here and what we can't do here. But let me address this. What do we do if we're sitting here thinking, well, I, I can't give anymore? Well, let me ask you a question. I think I've got one here, actually. Let me ask you a question. Not a trick question, right? What, what is that? Right. And what else is it? So what's new? Yeah, it's new. It's got a see-through window on it. It's a gift for Jonathan. Jonathan, thanks for making fun of him. All these sermons. <laughs> what does it represent? Promise. A legal currency, yeah. What does it, what, what does it, what, how, how, well, assuming I didn't take it from somebody, how did I get this? By, by working, right? By working. So, would it not be true to say that this actually is stored work? It's stored work, isn't it? It's stored my time and work. I, I did a certain amount of work and time, and I got this, and it represents my work, doesn't it? And I could go into, the bakery in Sexton's, and swap this for somebody else's work who's made a sandwich. That's their work, and I can swap this, can't I? Um, or I could go to Marks and Spencer's and swap it for the work going in that went into making a T-shirt or something like that. It's stored work. So the point is, stored work or stored time is the same currency as money. It's the same currency. It's the same thing. And you hear the phrase, time is money, because it is. <laughs> Time is money. So if we can't give money, we can give time, can't we? Um, Helen, the, ch uh, 
financial officer in this church said to me, well, we, we are paying something like £2,000 for a gardener. And if somebody could give two or three hours, that £2,000 could be reduced significantly. Time is money. Some of us um, can give more time in tasks. Some of us can give more money. Maybe you're, you're working all hours, but you have money to give. Well, that's what you can give. I think it's important we try somehow to do both. There's a temptation sometimes to just give money, but discipleship is more about is more than just handing over money and turning up on Sunday. We have to be doing as well, um, particularly the, the menial tasks, uh, the moving chairs about, the, the sort of foot-washing elements of discipleship. We can easily lose because we think, well, we've got paid people. We've got somebody in the office who we can pay to do that but then we were losing an important aspect. We'll talk about this some other time. Today, I just want to say, time is money, and we can give time or money. So, the, the other element of this is, um, Richard mentioned this morning, that we're talking about big new ideas that we believe God has given to us. This is an exceptional time in the life of this church and potentially in all of our lives. It's only once in a generation, I think, that we discern the Spirit of God moving definitively and precisely in a certain direction to say, plant a church. Transform what you're doing here during the week. Completely transform it. These are exceptional discussions, exciting discussions. Really, to be involved in this is a great privilege. We are potentially going to see real kingdom building going on here. That is the vision. That will take more time and more money. It's going to be well above the legacy, the money that we've got stored away, well above that. So if we're serious about a vision, any vision for God in this area, we, kind of, we have to get into this, time, into this frame of mind. This is going to cost. If we want to be, if we want to get on board with what God is doing, there will be a cost. So, if you were doing Facebook or email, you can look up now. <laughs> let's, let's bring this to a close. And... Um, Let's just wrap up a few points. So, God cares a lot about what we do with money. Don't believe me? Just read the Bible, almost any book in the Bible, and see how many times God brings up money. It's not me, it's not this church, God does it. But money, money isn't bad in itself. Money can do great good, but it can lead to a creeping reliance on worldly things. And we suddenly, we need a bigger barn gets disguised as we're being prudent. And that's up to our own wisdom and our own discernment to determine that. Is tithing outdated? No, I don't think it is outdated. But it may not be possible for everyone, but we can trade time with money. We can trade that. And lastly, this, this is a call to be outrageously generous, just as God has been generous to us. So let me finish on this, um, which is more about how do we give rather than what do we give? What is our attitude when it comes to giving? Our attitude, actually, how we give is as important as what we give. So, for example, Jesus, as recorded in Acts 20, where um, Paul, quoting Jesus, says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I think many of us have found it, it actually is. It's not some kind of spiritual blessing. It actually feels good to give money. It feels good because you can see the difference that it makes. Just, you know, whatever, 20 pounds to sponsor a child in the developing world. You can see the difference that a small amount of money makes. It feels good and that's a good thing. 
It is more blessed. We are blessed when giving. It's a blessing. It's a privilege to be able to give. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, so each of you, to summarize, should give what you have decided in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Or as an old pastor I knew used to say, give hilariously. He'd send the plate round and say, please, give hilariously. Give hilariously, because in the end, discipleship is not about rules, it's about hearts. This is not about external conformance to a law. Our faith never is. It's about internal transformation of our hearts. It's about being generous to others, as God has been generous to you. So please, give, but give hilariously. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just as you uh, look upon us, Lord, and as you looked on that rich young ruler, Lord, we look into your face again, Lord, and we ask you to reveal in us, Lord, what is good. Reveal in us, Lord, what is selfishness. Reveal in us, Lord, and make in us, Father, a compassionate and generous heart as you are compassionate and generous to us. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.